0: Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. So welcome to a special episode of Let's Talk Micro on World Rabies Day. So we normally release episodes on Thursdays, but today we are releasing on a Wednesday because it's an episode about rabies and it is released on World Rabies Day. So we have a great guest. It's a great interview, Uh, so I'm just going to say a few things real quick, and then we'll move on to the interview. So as always, you can find Let's Talk Micro on any podcast platform, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Good Pods. I am on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So go ahead and follow. Make sure that if you listen to your podcast, go ahead and write a review on your podcast platform, whatever you're listening to it. So go ahead and review it, go ahead and subscribe, and leave any feedback, any topic suggestions. They are always welcome and appreciated. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, go ahead and do so. It's a great interview with Dr. Marcos Garcia Ojeda from the University of California in Merced and it's about teaching microbiology remotely. How do we teach those hands-on skills that we need, you know, that the students need to learn microbiology? So check out what he did with his class and how he taught it online, and they got those skills. So go ahead and check it out. Great episode. So as I mentioned on the intro, today's an episode about rabies. So on the podcast today, Dr. Rodney Rody. He joins the podcast to talk about rabies, and in the episode, you know, we talked about what kind of work he has done with rabies. You know, we talk about treatment, prevention, and also about other things. You know, that he has done. He has he's very experienced in microbiology, and also an advocate in microbiology and medical laboratory sciences. So this is definitely a very active person and very knowledgeable. So let's go ahead and check out the interview. So today's a special episode. Um, Instead of our normal Thursday release, it's releasing on Wednesday for World Rabies Day. And what better than to do an episode on World Rabies Day about rabies? And with me, I have a a great guest. Today with me, I have Dr. Rodney Roddy. Dr. Roddy, welcome to Let's Talk Micro.
1: Hey, Luis. Thanks for Asking me to join your show again. It's always an honor and a pleasure to join you. And I look forward to talking about one of the topics near and dear to my heart, which is rabies. I've worked in this area for a little over 30 years now, which is hard to believe. So I'm excited to talk with you about it as well as educate the public about it.
0: Excellent. Definitely, you know, it's great having you here. So even though, you know, as of right now, you're kind of well known in the microbiology and medical laboratory sciences community. But for those new audience members, you know, can we start with a brief introduction and also an overview of your work with rabies?
1: Sure. Sure. Let me try to be as concise as I can. It is it is something I've worked in, as I mentioned, for over three decades, but really the first decade. So in 1992 to 2002, I worked for the Department of Health in Austin uh, as a uh, public health microbiologist was my title. And over that 10-year period, I I worked in many areas, but about eight of those years, I worked in virus isolation, and then I kind of specialized into the rabies and orbovirus laboratory. So I did that. So I was right in the trenches of doing um, diagnostics, actual animal diagnostics for animals that had rabies or not. And after several years of doing that, the, the position became even more extraordinary because Texas was in the middle of two rabies epizootics, which are outbreaks in animals, primarily in uh, foxes and coyotes. And we had had several deaths, uh, human human deaths to this particular um, um, disease, diabolical disease. And because of that, uh, the Department of Health got some special funding to create a new position, kind of what I call a hybrid position. And it really changed the really the whole journey of my career, because it was a position that let me stay in the lab for about 50% of my time. I still did primary rabies diagnostics, really through the gold standard of of the forest and antibody test, the direct FA. Um, We also were doing monoclonal antibody typing, which again, in the nineties was state of the art. We did a lot more antigenic typing to find strains and, and variants and things like that. But they were starting to look at this thing called PCR. And so this was early nineties and it had been out a few years, but it was really being discovered, as you know, as a really powerful tool in the world of diagnostics and surveillance. So they wanted me uh, in a position that the other 50% of my time was a title of molecular epidemiologist. And so what I got to do uh, was to travel to CDC in Atlanta And I got to work under and with uh, two of what I consider world experts and giants in the field, Dr. Charles Ruprecht and Gene Smith. Uh, If you look them up, you will see literally hundreds and hundreds of papers that they've authored uh, around the world with different uh, investigators. And anyway, in that time frame, I learned how to uh, utilize uh, PCR. This was back kind of when PCR was really being introduced into public health. uh uh, probably first before healthcare, and so i mean i learned it the old school way you know we still use mineral oil to cover the reaction and and we had some of the first thermocyclers. so it but it was state of the art and so i kind of cut my teeth on that and learned under gene and and dr rupert and then i came back to texas and with that background i put to use that information to learn how to use the material that we were getting You know, before that, all we could do was find out if one, the animal was positive for rabies and then would use monoclonal antibodies to figure out if it was these big categories like canine or skunk or bat rabies. But we needed a way to differentiate between uh, canine and I'm sorry, between coyote and fox strains. They were kind of two variations under the canine variant. And so what I did, again, kind of state of the art at the time, I amplified the virus, the RNA virus of rabies. And I used restriction enzymes to create what you might remember was called a DNA fingerprint. And so they were these particular band patterns. And beautifully, it worked beautifully. Um, it, it showed the difference between the two. I mean, you couldn't mistake the two. They were so unique. And so I was able to uh, use that to help the oral rabies vaccination vaccination program to identify and literally use GIS tracking to know where every case was and what the strain was. Again, this is a long story, but to kind of wrap it up here, uh, we were putting on the ground recombinant rabies vaccine. All right. This is before COVID, right? People didn't really seem to mind when we were out to use recombinant vaccinia virus that carried a rabies glycoprotein that when an animal ate it, it would coat its throat, its tonsillar region, and it would vaccinate that wildlife. It was, it was phenomenal technology. And again, I was on the ground uh, cutting edge of this with the inaugural ORVP team. And it was an international product. We had Canadian aircraft, we had Europeans, we had CDC, we had the Texas National Guard, we had us, a lot of veterinarians, a lot of wildlife biologists. And we went out to South Texas and would spend a month uh, flying up and down the uh, border around the Rio Grande dropping these recombinant baits for coyotes and and other canines to eat. And so I needed to be, I did that, which was cool. So I was out there in the field doing that, but I was also headed back to the lab occasionally to make sure that the uh, animal was not being translocated or the strain hadn't been moved or something had jumped across the river. So it was just an amazing time, Louise. It was about eight years of my early career, made a ton of, of friends and networked with colleagues in in a phenomenal time. And so I always like to mention that a lot of people don't know that about me. That was really where my, where my, um, my early experience, I think, has really transformed my career as an educator, as a mentor, and as a scientist, because I, I love working on really high level international, or at least, you know, regional projects that allow you to make real impact in public health. And, and that's just been
0: something I've taken right into the medical lab field. Sounds like amazing work. So you kind of you you mentioned you touched on this, but let's just start with with the basics. So what is rabies? You know, what type of virus, any related ones?
1: Sure. You bet. You bet. Yeah, sorry to get get going there kind of in the in the weeds, but it was just such a phenomenal project. And Yeah. So let's back up a little bit. You know, what is rabies? So rabies is an RNA virus. You've heard a lot about RNA viruses with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and influenza. It seems like everybody is talking about RNA viruses these days, Uh, but they are certainly, you know, a group of viruses that mutate more often, uh, tend to be a little more problematic uh, to find a good vaccine for because they just mutate so much versus a DNA virus. So that's step one. Rabies is an RNA virus. And it belongs to a family called the rhabdoviridae, which is really stands for bullet shapes. So when you look at rabies under an electron microscope, remember it's a virus, they're in the shape of a bullet, which is kind of appropriate because they're so diabolical. And and remember rabies up until the time of past year's vaccination creation was almost a guaranteed death sentence. Um, If you get bitten uh, by a rabid animal or acquired through a laboratory accident or something like that, without a vaccine, once the symptoms start, it's about 99% uh, deadly. So very scary and, and diabolical disease. There are other lists of viruses. Um, I actually, funny you mentioned, I just published a paper with Dr. Rupert that I brought it before about a year ago, year and a half ago, that does kind of this update uh, looking at the current status of rabies and Kind of moving into the future, so uh, that's something that you know I might be able to share with you to put put with the podcast. But it it goes into a very detailed look at all of the lyssaviruses. There are there are many, so I'm not going to try to name them all, but there are definitely multiple lyssavirus gen- genuses. and then even when you get into the one we're worried about, specifically rabies virus. There are so many genotypes, right? So we've learned a lot about that variance genotypes in the last year or two. But with rabies, you have these big pots. So you have canine, you have skunk. Um, you can have um, different types of fox variation. So there's an Arctic fox up in the Canada and European area. And then within those, cl- and bat, again, bat say mammal. It's a warm-blooded uh, flying mammal. And so within those, you can have all of these different variations and bats are probably the most notorious. I mean, just dozens and dozens of clades of uh, viruses within bat rabies strains that kind of makes it complicated. But with sequencing now and all the rapid technology that grew out of what I was doing back in the 90s, people can really get to the get to the answer pretty quickly. And um, what was fun, too, as I was finishing up it, at the Department of Health is I helped basically create the um, Texas Rabies Regional Reference Typing Lab. So for years, we were getting samples from all over the country and we would uh, work them up to find out if they were raccoon variant or skunk variant or, or what have you. And so, again, uh, just kind of a cool way to tie diagnostics with epidemiology and surveillance.
0: So, and what is the mode of transmission? Yeah, so the major
1: mode of transmission is the bite of an infected warm-blooded mammal. Um, We could talk about this for for some time, but that is the primary way that the virus is transmitted. And remember, rabies is a a virus of the CNS, the cerebral nervous system, the central nervous system. And so it can end up in um, ways that It actually moves through the body, comes back up through the peripheral nervous system. And many people think that uh, the the hyper salivation by animals and things like that, that you kind of think about when you hear of rabies, uh, induces aggressive and biting behaviors. And so that's kind of the route of transmission. You can get it, as I mentioned before, and there are some unfortunate accidents in the laboratory uh, through accidents that were unnoticed, like, you know, a cut. And you were handling rabid brain material or something like that and it entered through a cut that that is a possibility and you can probably also get it through um, a rabid animal that say they had it on their their sharp claws the saliva or something and then they scratched you that could be a possibility and then um, the other route is the occasional uh, through the cornea through the eye that's pretty rare. It's only been documented a handful of times in spelunkers uh, and things like that that probably got it into their ocular regions and it gets straight to the nerve uh, bundles that way. So those are, those are kind of the primary routes. And, you know, just kind of an aside here uh, from, from wildlife, something really important to know, uh, especially if you're in America, is that primarily we do a good job of vaccinating our dogs and cats and livestock, and so rabies, even though it's still in in animal populations, we still li- lose thousands of animals every year to rabies. It's rare uh, for uh, an, an American to die from dog rabies these days. I mean, it's really rare. It's it's super rare in the last twenty years. However the most common human rabies deaths in the U.S. are from bat exposures, and so just want to mention that uh, because bats are, um, the bites that they leave are typically like a hypodermic needle and very, very difficult to identify with the naked eye, and sometimes they won't even draw blood, so some of the literature, if you look at the the cases, by the way, no rabies deaths in humans this year in 2022, but in 2021, we had five in the United States, mostly from bats. One was a one was a transport from a different country from a um, from a dog rabies case. But unfortunately, these cases do happen again, thankfully not hundreds or thousands of them. But when they do, they're so sad because usually they're unrecognized. Um, and a lot of times it's in a child uh, or a teenager, something that just doesn't realize they've been nicked, uh, you know, they could be reaching into a wood pile, for example, or something like that, and they just don't realize it, and then when symptoms start, it's typically too late, so those wildlife animals, you know, always like to bring this up, and we can talk about it again and again, people really need to respect wildlife, uh, if not for rabies, other types of problems, because Animal bites have lots of uh, pathogenic bacteria, as you know, Luis in their oral cavity. You can get all sorts of problems with animal bites if they're not cleaned out well and you get the proper therapy. So uh, respect for wildlife. I really shouldn't handle bats ever unless you know what you're doing and you have the proper PPE. Otherwise call an animal control expert or a veterinarian and let them deal with it. Um, someone to come get it out of your house or what have you. But definitely avoid bats, raccoons, skunks, other types of animals that may look cute and furry, but could potentially be deadly if you're not careful.
0: So, as far as so, do they normally out of curiosity? So, bats do they normally just they're normally infected with it? They just carry it versus because you know you mentioned about vaccination of cats and dogs. So, wildlife a lot of wildlife they typically carry it.
1: Yeah, so any warm-blooded mammal can carry it, can be a reservoir, and and animals do succumb to it. So, for example, when I was, again, working in the field on any given day in Texas, remember Texas is a big state, and in certain places, like big areas with a lot of ranch land and things like that, so out in West Texas or or South Texas, it wasn't uncommon for a farmer or a rancher uh, to come, or just anyone, to come across a rabid coyote or a fox or a bobcat or something like that. And when those animals tangle with say a newborn calf or a or a horse, a baby horse or any horse or uh, other, or your dog, you know, if your dog wasn't vaccinated and they encountered skunks or coyotes or, or even a bat, cats like to play with bats, especially sick bats that are on the ground. So cats can sometimes get rabies from bats too. And so, yeah, once you, once you have that interaction, um, the wildlife could, you know, transmit it to a domestic animal. Now, that's why that is, again, why dog and cat vaccination and livestock, for that matter, is so critical because those animals are kind of the buffer between humans and wildlife. So, you know, if, if you have feral cats, you know, out on a farm or you have a dog that you've never vaccinated and they're tangling with a coyote that's rabid and they're coming into your house... Are under your house or they live in your yard and all of a sudden it gets aggressive that's a problem because now you can be in danger so so any animal a warm-blooded can transmit it through the through a bite what can't transmit it are birds reptiles amphibians uh things like that uh, there's there's no true documented human to human you know zombie apocalypse a type of transmission from human to human, but it's possible. I mean, theoretically a human could do it through a bite or something like that. Typically, uh, if that's going to be part of the problem. It's going to be more of a lab accident or something like that, where that happens if it's human to human. So, yeah. uh, And and again, because it's such a deadly disease, it does kill a lot of wildlife. And so sometimes you would have uh, farmers or ranchers or someone sending an animal that they just found on their ranch or on the road and and the veterinarian would pick it up or an animal control and they'd want to find out, do we have rabies in, in uh, Webb County or something in West Texas or South Texas? And so they would send it to us in Austin or one of the other rabies labs in El Paso, Houston or San Antonio, and they would test it. Uh, but you would often see, you know, in the summer when a lot of animals would be seen out in different parts of Texas, it wasn't uncommon for us in Austin to have over 100 animal heads delivered every day, every single day for testing, uh, including bats. So it was a pretty, especially in the 90s during those epizootics, it was not uncommon to get 10 or 12 positive animals a day uh, during the height of those epizootics.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, so what are some you know signs and symptoms? How does the virus affect and all the animals or people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think most people, you know, when they think of rabies, depending on your age, uh, you might think of Old Yeller. That kind of dates me a little bit. That's an old classic movie that shows um, kind of the signs of rabies in a dog. Cujo, a little more current, a Stephen King movie that a lot of people kind of connect with rabies, kind of the, the frothing and hyper salivation, rabid dog. Uh, And even in more recently with Will Smith, I am legend, right. The, are some of the other movies that have, you know, if you notice a lot of movies um, in the popular media are about, they kind of tie to rabies. They don't ever say it specifically, but even I am legend uh, with the humans that are, you know, attacking or world war Z, you know, with Brad Pitt in the movie and some of those, they're basically rabies like viruses where humans are attacking humans and and so forth, even on TV, right, Uh, The Walking Dead, for example. So the popular media has long uh, kind of mimicked and talked about rabies uh, in the stance of kind of, you know, how it's um, going to affect a human. And so those classic signs are there, the hypersalivation, the aggressive behavior. But let me tell you about some of them that are also common that people don't really know about because people don't really talk about them. Some of the other signs in wildlife especially, but also in humans, uh, is that because it's a central nervous disease, as it, as it progresses, you have a lot of problems with mobility uh, and behavior in the sense that your you know, um, balance uh, for humans, your ability to um, kind of be in the moment mentally, and what's so bizarre about it, Luis, is that the, the virus is kind of, you know, sometimes cycling and doing different things in the central nervous system. So I might be talking to you normally. This is all documented in the literature. Uh, and say I'm in a hospital bed and I have rabies and they're not sure what to do with me. I could have a, you know, a, an intelligent conversation with you about politics or something else going on in the world. And then 10 minutes later, I don't know where I'm at, you know, I'm rambling, I'm um, twitching, And so it really messes with your mental faculties and things like that. And so it could even be confused for some mental issues if people didn't know what was going on. Um, The other kind of interesting things that can happen is it can also create something called aerophobia. Uh, So in humans, we know that uh, in the later stages, this is again, if they're not vaccinated and they're approaching death, uh, any type of air, that blows across their skin or in their face or something, uh, you know, for lack of a good scientific term, freaks them out. It just kind of, it kind of, you know, catches them off guard. They, they don't like it. They will almost lash out uh, at that kind of, and it has something to do with the sensitization of the skin and the nerves from that virus. Uh, There has been documented literature in the cases of patients that have been mistaken of having, really severe toothaches uh, that have gone to the dentist even and had teeth removed or work done, which is unfortunate because once they figured out, then the dentist and the dental hygienist have to have vaccinations because they've had their hand in the mouth of a rabid human. Um, So sometimes uh, jaw pain and things like that can happen. Ultimately, um, and I should back up and say early in the course, it can present like flu or something, a lot of fatigue, a lot of aches and pains. You might even have some intestinal involvement early on, but as it progresses, if you have not been treated and things are not going well, you can start having multi-organ failure. Uh, ultimately, the virus will start shutting down the kidney, uh, the heart, and eventually you will slip into a coma even, and you will die um, from that from that particular infection. Um, you know, we can talk a little bit about uh, some of the, prophylaxis around that if you want to in a minute, but without vaccination, um, you're in trouble. I mean, it's really, it's not unheard of for someone to survive, but if they do on their own, they typically have major issues with their mental status and or they may have massive paralysis and some other features like that. So it's just a really rough uh, way to go. I wouldn't want to wish rabies mortality on anyone. Very, very scary and, and tough way to go.
0: Um, I like now that you're mentioning these films and I think about it It definitely in some sort of way. Yeah, it talks and it kind of describes rabies. Like, yeah, it's, a, it's always, you know, you, the person that has it, they bite someone else and then they start getting those. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can go into, in fact, uh, the recent book I wrote in 2019 with several co-authors on rabies with Elsevier. We have a whole chapter uh, dedicated to kind of the popular media and, and even some of the myths uh, surrounding rabies, because there's a lot of stuff that's not as true as you think it is, uh, but but it's based on some facet of truth. And then it gets turned into Hollywood or, you know, or TV types of things or books, uh, all good reading, uh, but sometimes it's not perfectly true.
0: Yes. Okay. So, um, so if you are exposed to it, you know, what are the, the treatment options and well, I'm asking this. I also, because I was reading on the on the CDC's website that it says that several factors, you know, they're taken into consideration for prophylactic post-exposure. So, can we talk about that? Yeah,
1: let me start with first of all for the audience. If you're listening, if you ever uh, think you've been exposed to rabies either through a bite or a scratch or or anything else, um, you definitely want to seek your physician's attention. Um, and and follow through immediately because uh, there's nothing uh, more sad uh, than than cases where people ignored something or they just didn't think it was a big deal and again it's really rare but you know if you suspect something there is no harm ever in talking with your physician because they can kind of help you walk through the scenario whatever you might think has happened an animal exposure you know some people for example Luis will say things like well I got sprayed by a skunk. Uh, am I going to get rabies? You're not. Um, skunks cannot transmit uh, rabies through their spray or urine. Uh, it's not a blood-borne type of infection. You can get it through an organ transplant, by the way, because rabies can disseminate into organs, and there are some sad cases of that. Uh, but generally, uh, you know, blood and urine and, and, and fecal content, things like that, do not uh, cause a problem with rabies, it's all about that bite, or getting into your eyes, or something like that, or organ transplant. So just to kind of make sure, it's paramount. It's of paramount importance that you always seek a physician's uh, care. Uh, if nothing else, just to have a sounding board to talk about it. And if you're not going to do that, then make sure you're you're talking to someone, uh, a rabies expert, or you know someone that can at least direct you to a physician, and maybe say, yeah, you need to go talk to a doctor because you may need vaccination just to make sure better to be safe than sorry for sure so um, yeah so if you get bitten right so the key is if you get bitten the first really helpful thing is if the scenario is you were bitten by a known uh, dog or cat or other even livestock if something happens on a farm most people should have proof of rabies vaccination. That's still a rule in the United States that you have your domestic animals and your livestock vaccinated. And once you know that, and or if you don't know that, the animal can be tested. Uh, if they have to, they can test the animal. And if they're negative, you're good to go, right? You don't have to worry about it. And that's important to know because some people, I'm mentioning this before we get into the prophylaxis. Some people, uh, for example, uh. uh a common scenario is that something will happen on a school ground or, or somewhere where someone picks up a bat, they find a down bat and they throw it in the trash. Uh, there's cases where they flush it down the toilet when all they need to do was send it to the lab to get tested. But once you destroy that animal or get rid of it and can't find it, then you have a problem because then your exposure is unknown uh, of whether or not that bat was rabid or not. And if you don't know, if it's a bat in the United States, you're probably headed for vaccination because that's where most of the deaths have been uh, attributed from. So it's really critical again to to know if you're out there listening that you know if something happens in an interaction with an animal, try to call animal control, don't don't destroy the the animal or something like that. Um, you know, or even if something happens or someone did, Kill an animal that that you know attacked you. Don't get rid of the animal. Call animal control or a veterinarian, and they can test the animal, and that will that will give you a lot of peace of mind. I'll just put it that way. I can't tell you the hundreds of cases I've consulted on where people don't have the animal anymore, and then it becomes a well. Now you get to talk to your physician, discuss the case, and decide if it merits. Uh, rabies uh, vaccine and, and post-exposure protocols, uh, and some people just beg for it anyway because they can't get over the anxiety of the of the of the possibility. So that's really important before we start. If you know uh, you've been bitten, or if you know you've been exposed to a rabid animal, whether you're a laboratory worker or or someone in the public, the first thing that you should do if you're right there and alone is, like anything else, is you actually should express it. If it's not really dangerous, you should express it and allow it to bleed uh, to help excrete the virus out of the wound. Uh, wash it with warm water and soap, also something you typically would do. And if you have some type of iodine-based um, medication, that's also sometimes recommended. Again, keep it in the context of the wound. If it's you know a massive problem and you're bleeding, you need to get to the ER uh, to stop that bleeding and things like that. But those are kind of some of the first things you do. And then again, if you know that it was a positive rabid animal that bit you or something happened, you're going to start the vaccination series. I'm actually, uh, as I mentioned to Louise, I'm writing an article right now about Louis Pasteur that hopefully will come out this week. And one of the things that does not happen anymore, this is in the myth chapter now. uh, You used to get rabies vaccines in the stomach and you had to do it over a number of weeks That is no longer happening, that is absolutely untrue. It's a series of injections in the deltoid in the arm. And typically what you do is you will get one shot on day zero, so that's when you get bit, or as soon as you can get it, that's considered day zero. And then you get three more shots, right? So typically you get those shots um, around day three, day seven, and day 14, so that's four doses. If you are immunocompromised, let's say you are massively immunocompromised for some reason, you might get a fifth dose at day 28. That's kind of rare. So that's the vaccine. That's the part of active immune, immunization. So it's going to get your body, your memory B cells, your body cranking up rabies antibody to help tie up that virus. The other thing that might happen is you may be given HRIG, H-R-I-G, which stands for human rabies immune globulin. And this is more of a passive, immediate protection, but it it doesn't have any memory, but it's helpful right then. And so what that is, is it's a liquid that has immunoglobulins against rabies, and you'll get an injection. And if you can imagine right around wherever you were bitten, they'll do a bunch of little tiny uh, inoculations around the bite. And what that does, they're infiltrating the wound with this uh, H-Rig. And what that does is that any virus that's replicating in those nerves right around the bite or in that tissue area will neutralize the virus and rend it, render it uh, ineffective or unable to kind of enter your central nervous system. So you kind of hit it with a, a two-pronged attack. You want to initiate active immunity and you want to give someone uh, passive immunity kind of right away to help tie it up uh, so that you can kind of get them on top of that. Now, there are, you mentioned some of the considerations, um, and this is what's hard, I think, for physicians and others. Again, uh, the book that we wrote for, for Elsevier has a full um, chapter on this, so it's hard to do in a podcast, but you might give it a shot, or just, you know, if you're interested, you can look at some of this stuff online with other sources, because physicians and others do have to think about things. Uh, for example, was the bite from an animal that was considered high risk, right? So if it's a rabbit that's been cage raised in your yard and that yard has high fences and there's never been anything around it like a wild coyote or a fox or anything like that, they may recommend no rabies vaccine uh, because it's probably close to 0%. Rabbits also, even though they're mammals, lagomorphs rarely um, present with rabies. Squirrels, kind of similar. Rodents, pretty similar. Armadillas, I've seen one rabid armadilla in my life in Texas. Um, but, but it's such a rarity that there's usually a short publication when that happens. It's so rare uh, to see something like that show up positive um, versus a high risk, right? So if it's a skunk or a bat, if you're living in Texas and it's a skunk or a bat, that's a big deal. They're rabid quite often. Um, if you live on the East Coast, like, aren't you in Florida, Louise?
0: So from... Yes, I am. Yeah, so from
1: Florida all the way up the northeastern seaboard, a raccoon variants, Raccoon rabies is just out of control at times. So that's, that's going to be a problem if it's a raccoon. Hopefully you can find the raccoon or it's, you know, been, been captured or something and you can test it. If not, you might be considering a vaccine. Um, fox and coyote, depending on where you're at, uh, or if you're traveling, let's bring that up. If you're doing international travel, you're not in America, and you travel to you know Asia, or Africa, or Latin America. Many of these places have really massive dog rabies issues. So it always makes me nervous when I see pictures of friends or others vacationing and they're you know they're petting dogs, and you know kind of rough looking dogs like a feral dog or something. Or they even playing with monkeys? Uh, And things like that in some of the exotic island locations, there is a risk uh, uh, because people uh, don't realize that rabies, not to mention other infectious diseases, are a little more prevalent in those regions. So just like you worry about mosquitoes when you travel for malaria, you should consider talking to a travel physician or thinking about it. And if you're in the military or you're traveling and you're working outside in those areas, you might actually want to get, like I got when I worked in the field, pre-exposure vaccination so that you're kind of protected uh for those unknown or unrecognized exposures so pre pre pre-exposure vaccine is also it's one or two doses it kind of primes your body builds some immunity and so basically will protect you even if you don't realize uh, you haven't been or you've been exposed or something like that so again doctors and physicians have to kind of consider all these things have you traveled What's the risk of the animal? What cat is it? a high risk or low risk animal and so forth. So there's a number of scenarios uh, that they go through. And at the end of the day, I think what I've learned over 30 years is that I think rabies, um, you could put it up against most scary pathogens, uh, whether, whether or not a person has been told and educated that their risk is super low. You know, it was a mouse. It was an indoor mouse. Uh, some people will absolutely panic um, and 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 be anxious. I mean, to the point where it's creating physical illness for them or mental illness. So for those types of situations, you might just need to vaccinate. Uh, so sometimes physicians will just say, if you cannot sleep at night, if this is freaking you out to the point where it's making you ill, let's just do the vaccine. It's not going to hurt you. And they'll go through the series and and then they're Puts their mind at ease, right? Uh, And I get those types of calls and and emails all the time from people that, you know, are really concerned about some interaction. Um, Some people have a hard time letting it go. It could have happened three years ago and they're still concerned about something happening down the road because there's these oddball cases where rabies will incubate for three, five, seven years and show up very rare, super rare. But not impossible, and so when you see that in the literature, it kind of worries people that are going to worry, and so you have to kind of handle that in a different
0: way. You know, I like I like the fact that you said that. You know, when you're traveling to, you know, think about it and consider it, because yeah, a lot of people, yeah, you think about mosquitoes, and but you, and then you go to another country, and then like you said, you know, you're petting an animal or or a monkey, so you can potentially expose yourself to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone a good message for your for your podcast here, right? Is that zoonotic infections aren't just infections from human to human. When you travel to new areas, um, you know, you know. I think you're taught your whole life, right? You're taught not to drink water you're not sure of, um, and things like that. You're taught not to play with rattlesnakes, um, but not everybody thinks about, you know, the bite of a fly are petting a, a dog you know in latin america or something i mean you're out there enjoying yourself you're on vacation and everybody loves to pet dogs i mean i i do it sometimes but i tend to make sure i know what i'm doing and where i'm at um, i'm certainly not going to approach a feral animal mm-hmm. like i might somebody's pet like if i'm like if i'm in in the uk traveling and i'm visiting a family and they have a pet animal i'll probably play with that animal uh, but if it's out you know, in some other exotic part of the world and I'm coming across, you know, feral cats and dogs and and whatever, I'm not going to handle those. And I'm also going to be careful, like you said, with insects because of vectors like mosquitoes, flies, and ticks. I mean, those of us in microbiology and infectious diseases know the danger, but even we can be a little lax when we travel. Sometimes we kind of forget uh, that we're not you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, and we're traveling outside of our sphere and our area of maybe what we think is controlled and safe, but it may not be.
0: Okay. <clears throat> and you have talked about, you know, vaccination. So just to summarize it for the audience, uh, let's talk about prevention. What can we do?
1: Always important, right? The old adage that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, if you can do anything to avoid infectious diseases, prevention is the way to go from both a, um, you know, a, um, a wellness and a peace of mind and also financially, probably. So always want to think about prevention. So a lot of what we've talked about, let's just hammer home the points. Um, never, ever, in my opinion, should you handle downed or sick bats. And, and I would say just bats in general, now there, there may be individuals out there, and I, I have great friends who work in bat ecology. They do nothing but bat research. Bats are amazing. Uh, I love bats. They help pollinate flowers. They keep insect control down. They, they're part of our ecosystem. They're amazing animals. And, and when you read the literature, it's true. Less than 1% of bats, and let me put this in quotes, healthy bats will ever have rabies, pretty low percentage. However, when you're talking about downed or sick or odd behaving bats, sometimes up to 10% of those are rabid. That's been my experience with the data that I've worked with in Texas for decades, sometimes as high as 15% of downed bats. 10 to 15% has been my type of experience with downed or sick bats. So That's a different risk, you know, of handling or picking up a bat. So I would be, I would just say, don't call an animal control officer or your veterinarian. If you can't help it and it's, you know, something inside your house and you're concerned that it might get near your child or something like that, then definitely be careful with the sense of use something like a bucket to trap it on the floor or on a counter, wherever it's at. You know, don't pick it up. Don't interact with it with your bare hands. Uh, if you're going to mess with it, put on some super heavy gloves, uh, not, not your bare hands. And I would really even avoid that. I would try to trap it in a bucket or something like that. And then don't throw it away uh, because that's when the, the animal could be sent for testing if you're concerned. Again, some of the literature, Louis, some of the sad cases have been when small children were left sleeping in rooms with open windows Uh, And things like that, and nobody knew um, that a bat had come in at night or something and and bit the child or something like that. So really, really rare. uh, But you want to test the bat if you see see it in a room in the house and you're not sure. Get the bat tested uh, because you might want to consider vaccination. Other prevention. So that's the big one. uh, And we've already talked about wild animals. So be really careful around wild animals uh, in general, right? And teach your children uh, to respect wildlife and bats included just like you would with snakes uh, and things like that. That doesn't mean I'm saying all animals are scary and you should not work with them. I'm saying educate yourself and know what you're doing if you're going to be involved with animal um, handling. Um, Other things to think about is um, if you are traveling as we talked about or if you're entering a workforce where you might be working with animals, and typically you don't even have to think about this. If you go to vet school, if you're a wildlife biologist, if you're a bat conservationist, uh, if you're a medical uh, laboratory scientist, if you're a a public health microbiologist, someone who's working in these areas uh, or in the veterinary kind of fields and and research, you're probably going to get a pre-exposure vaccine. Um, So if you're thinking of that, you should probably have that pre-exposure vaccine. If you're traveling, you probably don't need the vaccination unless, you know, it's something where you're going to be there for two years and you know you're going to be working side by side in certain areas that can be really dangerous. I think the military sometimes might fit that category if you're doing certain things uh, or other types of fields uh, in agriculture or or animal uh, type of care you might be you know, thinking of something like that. Uh, The other thing around prevention is just education. Uh, And so we've talked a lot about it today, but you can do your part, uh, whether you're a parent or a teacher or or anyone for that matter, you can talk about it if the um, experience arises around wild animals or again, certainly bats in the United States. And things like that so that you can help educate younger children or those who just don't realize that there's a risk involved with handling some type of animal or bat. And so that's the primary ways uh, for prevention. If there's an interaction, as we've already talked about, then that's a different set of of criteria that you need to talk to a physician about.
0: Okay. So, and then we mentioned, you know, we're doing this, this show, this this episode, it's uh, playing on World Rabies Day. So, uh, Dr. Rody. so for the audience, so what is World's Rabies Day? World Rabies Day.
1: Yeah, thanks so much again, Luis, for um, allowing me to kind of discuss this. So, uh, World Rabies Day uh, has been going on now for probably a decade, maybe a little longer. And it's uh, been chosen to be September 28th, which is tomorrow for your show. And that has been deemed as World Rabies Day. And it's really been a global health observance. I think it started around 2007 or so. Uh, And it's really there to raise awareness about the world's deadliest infectious disease and to help bring partners and others together to collaborate uh, and to do what we're doing right now. So I appreciate your ability to use this platform to enhance prevention and control efforts really globally. And this day was chosen, Luis, because uh, this is the anniversary of Louis Pasteur's uh, death. And many of you may know that Louis Pasteur was the, uh, what I consider really the father of of a lot of medical microbiology, immunology, and vaccinology um, concepts. There's a lot of people that were involved in some of this, but he was certainly one of the top level scientists that contributed to creating uh, multiple vaccines like uh, cholera, chicken cholera, anthrax, and rabies. So he did a lot of work uh, in this area. And so it's kind of an honor uh, for him to put it on that date. And and really what we like to talk about is that rabies is 100% preventable, but it's also 100% deadly depending on the perspective of what's going on. About 60,000 people, if you did not know this, die from rabies around the world each year. Uh, and it's and it's really something that's preventable. It's really primarily an issue of, of dog vaccination not occurring, of vaccination not being equitable uh, globally. You hear some of that right now with COVID and, and monkeypox at certain parts of the world just don't get, you know, the vaccines they need or the education around it to get them. It might be a financial or other issue. Um, so it can uh, be something we really reduce mortality. We, we should not be losing 60,000 people a year to rabies. We have vaccines. We have the education. It's really just effort uh, to get that done. And so that's World Rabies Day. Uh, it's, it's, it's a day to celebrate and to educate uh, and really try to show the world and share with them some of these resources to help uh, help us to prevent these really nasty infections from occurring that could lead to mortality.
0: Okay. And as we, as, as we close this episode, so is there anything else that you want to add uh, to the audience?
1: Uh, only just a quick, um, I guess, a quick plug uh, to be sure and check out Luis's podcast for all things microbiology. Um, he does a great job. And so I would encourage you to, to follow him. Uh, I'd love for you to follow me as well uh, at Rodney Rhody and um, feel free to google me or, or go to my website i have a ton of rabies uh, education and research uh, types of resources for you to look at and i'll have a an article out tomorrow in the pathologist and one in the conversation discussing both rabies in general as well as louis pasteur's contributions so i appreciate the opportunity and thanks again luis
0: it has definitely been my pleasure and. Like I mentioned on a previous episode that you were uh, here on Let's Talk Micro. So for the audience, you know, Dr. Rohde is, you know, very active in only microbiology, but in medical laboratory sciences, you know, with many publications. And you mentioned your social media. So for the audience, so uh, which platforms are you on?
1: Sure. I'm primarily, so I've got three really that I'm on. So Twitter and on Twitter, it's at Rodney, R-O-D-N-E-Y, Rody ROHde, so just one at Rodney Rody. and then I'm on LinkedIn under the same name. and I'm also on um, Facebook. Uh, a little less uh, a little less uh, professional stuff there, but I do have a clinical lab science uh, presence as well. So Texas State University Clinical Lab Science you can find me posting on some of those platforms as well. And I have my own YouTube channel that I'm I'm starting to build so, Uh, under the same name. So yeah, give me a follow and, and be happy to interact with you about rabies or being an advocate for, you know, medical laboratory science, which is so critical right now uh, and every day. So all of those things I'd appreciate and be happy to interact with you.
0: Well, definitely, you know, thank you for the plug and, you know, it's been great having you. So Dr. Rody, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to comment on Let's Talk Micro.
1: You bet. Thanks, Luis. Take care, everybody.
0: All right. Thank you. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode about rabies. I definitely enjoy sharing this information with you. What a great guest, Dr. Rodney Rohde. As always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. I keep emphasizing that we do such great work, such an amazing work. So please continue bringing that passion. And as always, stay motivated stay safe and of course continue talking micro until the next time bye